I'm sorry, I had, I had you on mute, and I thought you were talking to Jonathan. Are you talking to me? Yeah, okay, I'm sorry. sorry. Yeah, continue. Well, I'll, I'll take care of the editing. completely <laughs> delete this all. Blah, blah, blah. <laughs> this is Tectonic, a weekly talk show revolving around the seismic shifts in technology, culture, and the digital age. This is episode number 46. I am Joe Darnell, and with me is my co-host, Mr. Joshua Piper. Good evening, sir. Good evening, sir. I'm, you know, I'm a bit nervous this evening. <laughs> Whatever um, for? Well, you know, last week you were, you know, you were a chipmunk, and uh, <laughs> and this week we have a, a, a Microsoft engineer on, so I'm just... Uh, why can't we ever get the bug where my voice transmutates into Optimus Primes? That'd be better. <laughs> Way better, much more interesting. Yeah, that'd so make a good hopefully, show. Hopefully, no tech tech difficulties this evening. Hopefully. These tectonic shifts, man, they're really screwing us up. <laughs> this is not what we were promised. <laughs> this doesn't just work. <laughs> That's true. That is no, true. No, actually, the problem right now is I have a bottleneck with my devices, and I think a lot of podcasters, professional podcasters, would tell me I'm going the wrong direction. Because tonight I'm recording on my MacBook One. Anyway, moving on, we have our guest, Jonathan Sampson. How are you doing, sir? <laughs> I'm doing awesome. I mean, it's taking everything in me not to chuckle at the uh, the banter so far, <laughs> but I, I'm doing fantastic. We have you back. Um, you're out there in Seattle land, uh, working at Microsoft, plugging away on Microsoft Edge. And how's it going? Uh, it's going awesome. I mean, this is uh, for, I mean, you and I have known each other for many years and um, you know, web development has always been kind of my passion. I've been doing it for about 20 years now. And, uh, you know, a couple of years back, I got a call from Microsoft asking me to come out and interview. And that was just a, one of those, you know, really just unforgivable calls, moments. Kind of moments. Yeah, it's, it's pretty incredible. I mean, when, when something that big comes through your front door, I mean, you count yourself very blessed and kind of take the bull by the horns. Yeah. Go West, young man. Yeah. Speaking of which, <laughs> yeah, you've got your son. I see a lot on Twitter and Facebook, he's taking up the code. You're teaching him well. He's actually doing a little bit of coding now. I mean, we've, we've discussed this before, but he hadn't taken a huge shine to it yet. Yeah, you know, we, we kind of got started uh, unintentionally. I knew that the game Minecraft was really popular. And so, you know, I went and got this game a couple, I think in 2014, Christmas 2014. We started playing on Xbox. And I was, you know, very happy to, to learn that there's this, you know, Redstone and stuff like that. You actually have some really rudimentary programming logic in this game that you can do. You can build some, you know, switches and do some basic engineering and stuff. And, and uh, you know, now that he's five going on six, I went ahead the other day and just put him up on Hour of Code, uh, which, you know, anybody can Google that uh, with Bing on the internet. And uh, they can find, Google, you know, Hour of Code. And it was actually really nice. It's got a nice visual metaphor for a programming language uh, where you drag blocks around on the screen, you set up, you know, loops and logic and that type of stuff, conditions, and uh, he he loved it. I mean, I was thinking maybe at five and a half years old, it might be a little much for him, but he just ate it up, and, and now he just loves Hour of Code. They have numerous games on there, too, which is pretty cool. Very nice. Mm. Thank you for that tip. I've got a bunch of kiddos, and they are Minecraft fiends, and they do a little bit with the Redstone, but uh, I've never heard of the Hour of Code, so I'll definitely be sending that to their iPads. I have heard of Hour of Code recently from other shows, and it does sound very promising. The fact that they get the young kids in there, make it entertaining, it brings to mind how the typing games when I was coming along were very interesting as a child back in the 90s, and there wasn't anything cool for us kids then for code development. Imagine the world and what a different place it would be if back in the 90s we had this sort of teaching tools for kids. Man, be so awesome. Yeah, I'm thinking, you know, I remember in the 90s, we had gizmos and gadgets, I think. And it was a game very similar. I think you would run around on this, uh, you know, 2D tile-based type game, and, and you would collect different pieces, and you'd have to arrange, you know, the, the pieces to open up doors and stuff like that. It's It was kind of like this introduction into some real basic engineering. Uh, but the stuff that we have today is so much cooler. I mean, part of the Hour of Code is... If you like Flappy Bird, you can actually program your own Flappy Bird. You get to put in custom logic and stuff like that. If you like nice. uh, Minecraft, you can actually program your own Minecraft game where you're actually, you know, authoring the commands that move Steve or whatever his name is around the, the canvas and tell him to, 
you know, chop trees down, you know, shear a, a sheep or something. And you program all those commands into it. And it's, it's really pretty exciting. I mean, even for someone who's been doing it for a couple of decades, it was still pretty fun. Yeah, this actually brings to mind some of the other things that I wanted to mention. You, uh, the other day, shared this on Twitter, the Computer Chronicles. This is the old video stuff about computers in the 90s. Yeah. This captures everything. If you don't know what we're talking about, you just have to look at their YouTube channel. We'll have a link in the show notes. This is outrageous stuff. It's, you know, I I was going through, usually at Microsoft, when I take my lunch, I'll sit down and I'll try to watch something. A few weeks back, I was trying to watch a documentary every day at lunchtime. Um, and so a lot of it was around like World War II and, and Nazi concentration. It sounds like a good New Year's goal. Yeah, it, it was working out pretty well. Um, Netflix has quite a bit of uh, good material. And so I dropped into just YouTube and I, I can't remember what I was looking up, uh, but I wanted to see basically what some of the advertisements for computers were back in the 80s and late 70s and stuff. I came across this YouTube channel called Computer Chronicles, which is apparently like a syndicated television show back in the 80s and, and early 90s and maybe even into the late 70s. And, uh, you know, they had a – I went straight for the 1983 because I want to see what was being debuted when I was born, basically, in the year of my birth. And uh, they had a computer there that had an integrated printer into the monitor. The monitor was a touchscreen, which blew my mind. I, I had no idea we had touchscreens back then. And actually, <laughs> when the hosts are talking about it, they're referring to the ability to interact physically with the screen as not a new technology. Um, and so they, they weren't as blown away by it as I was to see this in the 80s. <laughs> and uh, they also had, uh, they did talk about micro floppies, which were the three and a half you know, inch uh, floppy drives that we all remember having growing up, uh, the 1.44 megabyte ones and stuff. And it was so great to go back and watch this and like, oh man, this is, this is the roots of our industry. This is where it all came from. It ran from 83 to 2002, if you oh, can believe really? that. Nice. Yeah, PBS. <laughs> Shockers. I didn't realize it was on that long. Yeah, I knew it was on for at least a decade because I can see just the, the videos, unfortunately, aren't grouped uh, by, you know, chronologically necessarily always. But I mean, that's the kind of stuff I, I sit down and I started getting into this. I, I remember a while back I was looking into the history of just memory, physical memory. Um, and you know, you, they actually had this uh, magnetic core memory that would be a great thing for people to look up. If you go to Wikipedia and you search magnetic core memory, you'll actually find a super high resolution image of actual bits. So the ones and the zeros that we all know are in the computer, but we don't know where they are, or how they function. You could see actual little metal rings and the rings had cross wires going through them. And depending on the, the electrical charge, it would either you know, give the ring a positive or negative charge, which is the one or the zero analogy. And so you could see the physical bits on these things, and people would stitch them together. Seamstress would come in and stitch together actual memory meshes, and that would be the, the physical memory for these things. And so when I come across something like that or Computer Chronicles, it's just like the, the uber opportunity to really geek out on this stuff. So have you seen the other one, the parody of the Computer Chronicles? The uh, computer show by Sandwich Video. Um, it sounds familiar, but I, I can't say with certainty, no. They started a few months ago. We'll have a link to both of these in the show notes. And the reason <laughs> I love the computer show is just, it, it, it was a great parody with or without the source material in mind. Uh-huh. It really gets the 80s and 90s. Oh, nice. But what they do is they make it look as though these people are in the same suits and they have the same haircuts, they they behave the same way and they talk as though they're from that era, but they're actually interviewing modern computer technology entrepreneurs talking about what they're making today. And the hosts of the show just look at them with confusion, like, uh-huh, uh, whatever. <laughs> I, <laughs> it's I, great. Did they do one with an iPhone or something? I, I thought I remembered seeing something like that where... <laughs> They had basically, it was like they had transplanted the staff from Computer Chronicles all the way up in 2007 or 2006 when the iPhone was debuted. And they were just looking at this and <laughs> just in complete awe and wonder of it. It's so fantastic. I, I just love this. This is another thing to watch on, in your lunch breaks. Check it out. <laughs> out. <laughs> well, you know, something I wanted to talk to you about, Jonathan, because it is in your line of duty and you've raised the to the, the challenge. Over the years, you've done a lot of, I would call, uh, computer help online with other people. You've mentored some people on the side. 
you've given your recommendations. You taught me a little bit about computer languages as well. Well, HTML and what have you. And I've wondered if, if you could describe a little bit about like how you help beginners online, because I see you on Twitter every week and you're you know offering your services to help people on their personal projects, their website projects, making things uh, you know up to code, up to st- uh, the standards. How does all this work? I mean, where do you find the time to uh, come alongside of the others and uh, help them out? You know, this I would say all this really started. Uh, I'd say it started probably, I don't know, two thousand one or two thousand two. I had gotten, you know, Photoshop. I'd been playing with Photoshop a bit in school, but basically the online community for Photoshop was, they seemed super altruistic. Just about everyone who would learn anything wanted to write a tutorial about that thing and teach it to other people. And so, it, it, you know, I was kind of birthed out of that online community where it's like, okay, the moment you learn something, that's the first part of really truly knowing it. The second part is to see if you can teach it to somebody else. And, and the latter part, you know, process is, is just as crucial as the former. You know, that, that's what really solidifies it and bakes it into your own brain. The moment you can teach it to somebody is when you have certainty that you yourself know it. And so, you know, as they started learning HTML and stuff, uh, you know, I wanted to teach this to other people. I wanted to, it's, it's not so much, too, that you want to be a mentor. It's just that you're so freaking excited about it that no one can shut you up. And so... But you've maintained that excitement for a long time now. Oh, because it's... It's amazing. <laughs> and, uh, you know, so whenever I was, you know, anytime I would learn something new, I'd learn JavaScript, I'd want to teach somebody. The, the internet came along and gave us a site called Stack Overflow. And Stack Overflow is a community of 4.7 million programmers who are asking each other questions, exploring new topics, lending their expertise. Uh, you know, people on there who have literally decades and decades and decades sometimes of experience, you know, from things like punch card programming to mainframes, all the way up to today where we have, you know, super high level languages, things that are very easy to uh, kind of get involved in. And uh, it's it's just really exciting, you know, to, to impart this knowledge and this passion and excitement for the industry into other people. And so, you know, they're in, uh, when we both uh, kind of lived near each other in Atlanta there for a while, yeah. um, you know, I had learned of an organization there called Black Girls Code. And so I was going, you know, down to Atlanta, you know, probably once every few months or so, uh, just to teach a bunch of young girls programming and web development. And it was like any opportunity I could find, I'm, I'm going to take this. And and even if I have to create them, you know, there for uh, I think a couple of years, I was doing regular Thursday evening, uh, you know, streams online over YouTube, teaching HTML, CSS, JavaScript, PHP. Um, you know, various different libraries that, that are built on top of those technologies. And uh, yeah, I, even today here within Microsoft, just about every day, um, you know, I'm, I'm trying to show somebody how to do something new. You know, I was just talking with a coworker today. Uh, we're, we're exploring something that we can build. And, you know, he was saying, well, that's a little bit on my wheelhouse. And I said, dude, I will make a functional prototype and we'll meet in the morning and we'll just go over it and how it works. And it'll be awesome. And so you oh, know, tomorrow morning, I got yet another opportunity to, uh, you know, geek out over this technology with uh, coworkers. So then how do you collaborate with the people at large? Because you, you got the people there, I guess it would be easier to socialize and rub off on each other there at Microsoft. But you're not just active in the office. You're really socially active and continue to give to the community from what I can tell um, any adventures that have happened along the way on Twitter? Uh, you know, Twitter is kind of probably the most active place. I mean, I've I've been very fortunate to have other opportunities. So, like, I've traveled to Brazil and spoken, uh, you know, I think two times or three times now at Brazil JS, a JavaScript community there in Brazil. And uh, you know, I've had the opportunity to you know travel here within uh, you know, the Washington area, travel to California and different places in the United States to, to teach as well. Uh, Twitter is kind of where I, I live and breathe and move and have my being though. And as you're saying, you know, I'll come in on the weekends and, you know, I, I know that there are people like me who are, are weekend warriors because they want to be, or, yeah. you know, they've got to, they really have to finish that project before Monday. They'd rather been, you know, spending their time with their kids and family and stuff. And so, I go in on Saturdays, and I do. I, I send out a tweet and say, hey, if you're working on something web-related, if it's a web platform issue, meaning you're, you're building a website, 
Uh, I'm here to help for the next six hours free of charge. Microsoft engineer donating my time. Um, and that's not just if you're trying to make things work inside our software. If you have, and I've had people in the past reach out with an issue in Chrome or Firefox, and it's like, you know what, let's let's pull up uh, Google Hangouts and let's just hit this together. We'll knock it out in 20 minutes or so, and at the end, we'll both be better for it. Mm, yeah, so anyone who's listening to the show, you got to check them out because I know you're very knowledgeable. You got a good set of skills and there are some other developer types that care about these things, and I just don't know where to begin. I mean, I imagine you've helped people with a myriad issues, so definitely seek Jonathan out because you're a real trooper out there, man. I don't know how you find the time and where you muscle through some of the issues. You do a lot of your work collaboratively. When you're working on the code, are you are you returning to a particular tool online to work with people where you can chat and see their code and edit it in real time? You know, there are a bunch of different places. You know, Stack Overflow, obviously, people go there, they ask questions, but they also post their code from yeah. Stack Overflow. Usually, you know, there's a one-to-one. Anytime I'm working on someone's um, code snippet with them, maybe it's like 10 or 15 lines of code, I'll create what's called a fiddle. So there's a website called jsfiddle.net. And you can create just really small, uh, you know, samples. You put in some HTML, some CSS and JavaScript. You can host little demos with that. So usually when I'm helping people on Stack Overflow, there will be a corresponding fiddle to the post. Um, if it's a larger product, you know, sometimes people have really big projects. And those projects are oftentimes hosted on a, a source code, you know, uh, a distribution server or, or this, you know, a place like a, a repository like github.com and github basically they host your source code um it's distributed version control was the word i was looking for and basically anybody across the world who has access to your repo they can send changes in the code up into the cloud and so i can there i can you know look at the code just in my web browser if i see an issue i can issue what's called a pull request where i actually make a change in the code and then i submit that for their consideration if they click accept, then my code gets sucked right up into their project and oftentimes gets automatically deployed to their server and their website is just fixed. Um, and so there's you know, a handful of different websites and services that I use, but uh, it, it's usually between Stack Overflow, GitHub, JS Fiddle, and Twitter for the most part. I want to talk about the Microsoft Edge project uh, here in a few minutes, but I wanted to turn the subject matter around. Joshua, your daughter, she picked up an iPod Touch recently. Yeah, we'll uh, circle back to Microsoft land, but we need, you know, it's been about 18 minutes. Our listeners need to take a breath and, you know, we need to have some, some Apple time. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, you know, I, let me just zoom out for a minute, give a, a, just a, a brief overview. You know, the kids have been getting older. I've been struggling with understanding, you know, what to do with their needs, their tech needs. You know, did I want to buy a couple Macs? Do I want to push them towards iOS? And uh, Christmas came around and they had some spare money and some iOS devices went on sale and, and a couple of our kids got some iPad mini fours, which had been really, really, really nice. But the one seven-year-old didn't want to spend that much money. She bought a iPod touch, I guess, whatever the latest generation is fifth, seventh. I don't know, but I think it's the fifth. Okay. So yeah, I think that's about right. But the, I love this thing. Like I'm constantly borrowing it from her just to hold it and feel it. It feels like it's a, uh, like it's a toy, like it is so light and, and it's, and it's probably, you can't go to the store and probably pick it up cause it's probably tied down with a, with a cord. But if you can get no, it, actually, well, you can, you can pick it up and cradle it. You can okay. use the interface, uh, yeah, check out the back and the ports yeah, and stuff like that. There is, there is, it, it's really, really cool. I, I'm really looking forward to the, hopefully the new iPhone seven C five SE, whatever they're going to call it. <laughs> That's the smaller form factor, you know, with, with, you know, I'm hoping it's not really, really, uh, I guess, uh, degraded, uh, functionally. It's kind of, uh, asking for both things, full functionality and really light and small, but it's just a really nice form factor. But yeah, just, you know, looking, looking at ahead at the, at the family and trying to organize family stuff, well, your your daughter is very familiar with computers up to date and iPads as well, but this is her first personal device. This is a milestone. 
Well, yeah. Well, all, for all three of them, it's been their, their their first devices. We've got two two iPads and and one new iPod Touch. So it it kind of all happened at the same time. Uh, but it's been pretty cool. I've got I finally broke down and went with the the family sharing plan. So we all have got our own iCloud devices. So we're chatting with each other and sending messages and especially one one of them's got uh, figured out how to do the emojis. So I'm constantly getting lots of emojis and I love you daddies and that sort of thing. So that's pretty cool. Nice. Looking forward now that I've got the whole iCloud family sharing set up, I'm looking forward to like shared reminders list. And, and it actually, it actually worked the other day. I had a, a weekly reminder for the son to take out uh, the trash. And I thought, okay, well, I'm going to have to go remind him because I'm sure he didn't see that. And he's sitting there playing his game. I'm like, hey, buddy, you need to go take out the trash. He goes, oh, I already did it. A thing popped up, told me to do it. Nice. <laughs> so it was like my dream is starting to come true. Like these kids for oh, so many years, it's just you're just serving them. You're <laughs> wiping their butts. But but now I can just message them with my iPhone and tell them to go do stuff. And this is a breakthrough in our life. And it is really exciting. We're also doing the homeschool thing, as you know. And one of the things I was really frustrated with at first is I, I realized we couldn't share like a, a folder for notes, you know, that I wanted to, I wanted to stay basic. I know there's solutions out there, but I wanted to stay very basic for the family, uh, especially for the kids. And I wanted to do some, you know, shared notes. iCloud can't share notes. It's kind of crazy. So we, we may have to go with Evernote for that, unfortunately. But yeah, just overall the, you know, shared calendars and, and things like that with the whole family is, is becoming a reality. So yeah, there's never been a good time for me to to give a an update on on where we are at as a family and how uh, tech is helping to organize and direct our lives. So, what what are the age ranges of your kids, Joshua? Uh, two to ten. So the oh, okay. the seven, nine, and ten year old just got their own devices. So nice, very cool. Yeah, I have a five year old who's going on six who. You know, he has a, I think, in a generation one server or surface and, uh, you know, laptop and you know, a couple of things. He does the homeschooling as well. And so we're, we are seeing those things kind of in the horizon coming up. You know, as we start to get more and more complicated, we're going to have a, a daughter that'll be, you know, going in, you know, starting her schooling here in a couple of years. And, and uh, we'll be facing many of those same challenges. But hopefully by then, the industry will have advanced a bit more than where it is right now. And, I won't have to face the same problems you have to face. <laughs> we, we've tried some other things. We had a uh, like a two hundred dollar Chromebook that was kind of an experiment, and we got about two solid years out of that, and it's finally broken into pieces. And then uh, we had a like a kind of a sort of a shared iPad that it has you no know, glass missing from it and things like that. Yeah. So, uh, I, but I'm I'm actually looking forward to the to these lighter devices. You know, they're they're going to drop them, but they're getting so light that I don't think the force should have much of an impact. So, yeah. Do your children seem to favor the iPod touch over the mini or vice versa? <laughs> well, the, the first two had the iPads first and the, and the, and the seven year old girls like, I'm not going to spend that much. Cause I should add, they, they spent their own money. Uh, we, we give them a little bit of uh, money each week and have it directly deposited into, into their accounts. Virtual high five. Yeah, like they end up having like five or six hundred dollars, and so as I'm struggling with this, like, how, what am I going to do for their tech needs? I look at their accounts. I'm like, they've got more money than I do. Like, what? They <laughs> buy your own iPad. So uh, yeah, what the Best Buy had had a, a sale, and they were the, the new iPad Mini fours were like three hundred bucks, and I was just like, wow, goodness. So it's a it's quite an iPad for three hundred bucks. So yeah, the first two to answer your question, the first two got their iPads. And the seven-year-old was is pretty content. She's like, eh, whatever. And I finally talked her into an iPod Touch. And now, of course, the other two, they call it the, an iPhone. So, you know, they're just jealous because Elizabeth has the iPhone. So, yeah, there, you know, there's there's no satisfying small children sometimes. But <laughs> I tried explaining, like, yours is a little bit better. It's, 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 it's okay. But, you know, <laughs> coveting is going to happen. What you were saying earlier, how the form factor could be similar for this f new version of the five. I the sure hope. 5. I mean, you can tell, you know, it's a $200 iPod. There's there, there are cutbacks, but just to feel it in your hand is like, it's like a toy. It is so light. But it's, that's a, not a bad thing. Oh I mean, no, I, I want it. Good thing. I want it. I want it. I want a sub 100 gram iPhone. You know, we're at like, I think 130, 140 now with iPhone 6s. Uh, but this thing is 88 grams and it is just, it's amazing. 
I love it. It does feel great when you see it in the hand. I noticed today when I was looking at the displays at the Apple store that the colors just pop a little bit better on, well, I mean, the color schemes they have on the, all the iPods is different from that of the color on the iPhones. Mm-hmm. And I prefer them. I don't know if they'll introduce that kind of color scheme to the five line, but I would think that they could offer a very, very similar form factor because the, the all things considered, the parts necessary to jump from a touch device to a phone device are very few. It doesn't add a lot of bulk. So I would think that it, we're getting really close. Yeah, we're getting close. And if they go the way of getting rid of the, the audio jack, which is highly up for debate, but if they get rid of the audio jack, then you're that much closer. It seems that much more feasible. Right. Uh, you know, um, I, I just, like I said, I, I hope they don't call it an iPhone 5 something. That just sounds ridiculous to go backwards. I hope they call it the iPhone 7C and, and kind of mm. s- stay with, with that number. And I just hope they don't strip that many features. I mean, you definitely want touch ID. Once you go, once you go touch ID, it's hard to go back. Um, well, that is an interesting notion. I don't, I don't know what they're going to do about the naming convention, but I do like the idea of the fall seeing a lineup of what they call the iPhone 7C, iPhone 7, and iPhone 7 Plus. That would be a good lineup. Yeah, they they, they have to do that. Could you imagine seven seven S? Or seven, seven plus, and five SE. I mean, that that's just that's really ridiculous. But <laughs> no. anyways, I, I agree. Yeah. Well, one other thing you glossed over was the family shared account. That's an iCloud like family account. Can you go a little bit more into that? Because I know it exists, and Apple announced it, and just a few people have dabbled with it because it doesn't really. I mean, not everybody has the need to set up a family shared account. Sure. What's involved and have you encountered any bugs or issues? A lot of people expected issues with that sort of thing. It, it has evolved over the years. They announced it a few years ago and it, it's gotten a little bit better. And I'm hoping I was trying to hold back, um, you know, for it to get even a little bit better, but you know, basically it is, uh, you have a, a, a head of household kind of account that sets it all up. So you assign other adults, other children, uh, and you create like the IDs for minors. And then of course you can control all of, all of the parental controls and things like that. I wish it were a little easier. Uh, so I'm hoping that they continue to work on that as far as getting into and controlling what, what people can do. For example, for, for a kid, for one of the, you know, one of the kids to download an app, you can turn on a setting that says request to purchase, you know, which sounds like a reasonable thing, except when your child wants to buy a new game every five seconds, uh, that was really annoying. So, so I'm constantly having to type in my password and for a while the touch ID wasn't working on it, which made it even worse. But anyways, so I ended up turning the, turning it off. I'm like, you know what, just go buy whatever, you know, just, just get, download your games, uh, thinking that surely it won't let him actually spend money. And then of course it let him spend money. So he yeah, ended up buying $5 worth of gems in app purchase somewhere. But, but so yeah, the, the, the I guess the family sharing in general is a, is a, a shared account. It, it won't let, it'll let you share some things and not other things. For example, it won't let you share contacts, which drives me crazy. It'll let you share calendars. It won't let you share notes, but it will let you share iTunes media purchases. Uh, it won't let you share notes, uh, but it will let you, I kind of, I, I kind of ran out of stuff to say, but you know, <laughs> it, it's, it's kind of hit or miss, you know, like notes is a pretty basic thing. I really wanted a shared folder for notes, but can't do it. My guess is that it's an issue of what they were able to put together for this particular release. Yeah. But, but there still are things that have been missing forever. Like we just want to, we want one place where we can put contacts. Right. And we can't do that. Yeah. So now, now for my wife, like for my wife and I, we have basically we've now branched off with, you know, the database into two separate databases. And so I have to tell her to, you know, forward me a new contact if she puts one in and, and I don't want to manage that. And I know I could go, you know, with Google contacts or some other solution, but you know, that's, that's not what I want to do. I I just want shared contacts. I'm, I'm hoping they'll continue to improve. Okay. I did want to hear about the uh, about the various combination of newer devices involving the children and your thoughts because I knew you were managing the accounts and you had to you know be a responsible father 
make sure that the children weren't, you know, chatting up a storm on hip chat or ghost chat or Snapchat or face Mac or whatever it's called. I'm glad to hear it's going smoothly. And your children haven't broken the iPad minis. Do they have a case on them? Yeah, we, we ended up buying a few cases as well for the, uh, for the iPads just to make sure, but the, the iPod does not have a, have a case. I figure it's, it's light enough. It'll, it should, it should be all right. All right. Well, Jonathan, uh, do, do your children have any devices specifically to their own? Like Jonathan, sorry, John Anthony has a computer, right? How is that holding up? He's got, you know, he kind of these days spends most of his time on the Xbox of all things, but he does actually have an iPhone 5. Ah. It is an hand-me-down. So there was an issue, I think, with some of the iPhone 5 hardware a while back where the, the power button would not, you know, switch the screen off and back on. And, uh, you know, we went online, looked it up, and apparently there was some type of minor recall or something. Um, but just the whole process of sending in a device and getting a replacement or whatever it was going to tell, we just weren't interested in doing it. And so yeah. we just handed that device down to my son and uh, said, you know, here's kind of your first little phone. It doesn't have a SIM card in it or anything, but he can still, you know, install apps, play video games on there and stuff like that. So he absolutely just digs this thing. He he carries it around with him. We lost it for like two weeks. We figured out it was in his jacket pocket because he was taking it with him out of the house and everything. And uh, so, you know, he he plays with that. That's kind of his first thing for the hour of code and stuff like that. You kind of need for some of the more advanced, uh, you know, challenges on there. You need to have a keyboard, so he'll just kind of hop up on my lap and and use my uh, my laptop in those uh, situations. But he's getting to that age where it's like, you know, we we really want to do get him more and more invested into hardware, understand how to make it part of his life, understand how to utilize it, and uh, you know, serve him and himself and others around him uh, positively with it. And so we'll be probably looking at getting him a laptop here within the next year or so. But right now his, his time is basically spent on a scooter that he also just purchased with his own money. So very oh, it, it's nice, kind of a super proud daddy moment when your kid buys something with their own money. Like they, yeah. they actually, it's, it's a pretty pivotal point in their life. Yeah. we all have this trifecta of nice dad, proud dad moments <laughs> because my son and I were out at the Apple store today and he really wanted to buy something and he has his own money. He is accrued from doing chores. And I was like, sorry, son, there's really nothing here in your price range. <laughs> <laughs> you just got $10 in that Ziploc baggie. I can't help you here. And so afterward, we went over to the Best Buy. I was picking up some extra computer accessories and he saw just a few aisles down where the video games and he got permission to go there. And he went there and comes back with a couple of in Disney infinity packages. And he says, daddy, I can afford these. And I'm like, uh, you've got $9 and change in the Ziploc bag. I don't think you can afford Darth Maul and Kylo Ren, but we go back to the display and the shelf for Kylo Ren, it's label was completely ripped off. So who knew what the retail price was? And beside it was Darth Maul's display and it says $7.99 for each figurine. I kid you not. And I, I read the fine print and it says Disney Infinity figurines. So I'm like, okay then. So we go to the register and they ring it up and they come out as $14.99 and $23.99. And I said, I'm sorry, that's not what your display <laughs> says. And they say, oh, okay, well, we'll honor that price. Nice. Yes, nice. he got it for seven ninety nine. I just would have poured the change on the on the thing and said, <laughs> "There you go," and and walked out. Now, see that that's like double awesome because not only did he buy something, but he got it at a great deal. So <laughs> he can't appreciate it. That's the sad thing about it, though. Is he he understands the concept of giving the money, but the idea that uh, hey Jude, like you just got a steal. He doesn't get that. <laughs> so, oh, like, you realize how many how many times you would have had to have vacuumed and emptied the trash to get that figurine if well, you paid full price? I can say, you know, as someone who has literally purchased every single figure, uh, figurine <laughs> that has come out for Disney Infinity uh, up to this date, I would have loved to get them for seven ninety nine. <laughs> yeah. You need to take your kid, I guess. Take your son. 
have them have them cry. We have actually that that's happened. Uh, I've I tweeted about that maybe you know six months ago because on more than one occasion we've been waiting for certain figurines to come out. Um, you know, I I think it was some of the Avengers or something at one point. And we would go to Best Buy maybe two or three days before the actual date that they're supposed to be out, not looking for them, but just looking for other stuff. And we'd find that they're actually out on the shelf. So we'd like, oh, man, this is awesome. We'll take them up to the front desk. We try to buy them, and they refuse to sell them to us, saying, you know, we mistakenly put them out two or three days before. <laughs> and, you know, my son, four and a half, five years old at the time, eyes are just welling up in tears. <laughs> and I'm like, look at him, you monsters. <laughs> <laughs> Look what you're doing to this child. And they are just, you know, just stone-hearted. They, they would not budge what, whatsoever. They're saying, you know, if we sell these, we'll get in trouble and, you know, Disney will be upset with us. <laughs> I'd, I'd like to, I'd like to, if we, if we could uh, briefly touch on, on the edge and just the, uh, where, where it's going, you know, just a 30 second elevator pitch, you know, what, what you're doing with edge and, how old is Edge now, Jonathan? Uh, you know, it's it's tough to tell um, for me because I've been using it before it was released, and so the history is a bit cloudy. Um, I actually, uh, you know, one of the first things I did when I got to Microsoft was I unintentionally leaked that we're going to be like adding a, a different browser with a different name. I didn't know we were doing that, and I, you know, said in one of our chats that we have with the public, I was like, oh, you know, it's. We, we've thought about it. Who knows what the future holds? I think I even put like a winky face on there or something. And, uh, you know, next day they were like, what are you doing? You just like revealed that we're going to be releasing a new browser. It's like, <laughs> I, I knew no such thing. I'm literally brand new here. I just said, there are, you know, we don't close the options, I guess. And, and so, you know, Edge was eventually launched. Um, people were very happy because basically if you look at Stack Overflow as one of the metrics, um, which I do as a web developer, the most popular browser in use on Stack Overflow, judging by the questions people are asking, is Internet Explorer 8, which is incredibly old. <laughs> and and so we, we've been watching, you know, you can actually track the number of questions asked per month. And the moment Edge came out, I think it was around the moment Edge came out, came out and IE11 also has a feature called Enterprise Mode, you start to see this, you know, IE8 market share, which is many times more than the second version of IE, which I think is 10, maybe at the time, you start to see it just drop, just plummet straight down, which is so exciting because Edge is, you know, for starters, it's an actual standards compliant browser. Um, I think Microsoft may have more people in the standards bodies uh, than any other browser vendor. Um, I, I believe that's the case. Uh, it's, I would have to double check, but I think we have over 50 people actually involved in cross-browser standards development, which is pretty incredible. Like We're working a lot with other vendors, Chrome and Firefox and Safari. Um, and so it's, it's really kind of exciting. You know, we're, We have one major area that the world uh, will not let us forget about right now. They, they kick us in the butt, thankfully, quite daily, I think, <laughs> is support for extensions. You know, one of the things I'm I'm right now on a device that has Chrome opened up and I've got, you know, LastPass and uBlock in, in the extensions panel up there. And, you know, this is something that we're developing right now for Edge. We actually have some uh, sample builds internally that I've been playing with uh, that actually show us a, a small selection of extensions that we can experiment with right now, how they're going to work and, you know, how we can actually integrate these nicely and make it easy for people who've done the work for Chrome or Firefox uh, to actually port their extension over to work inside Edge with with minimal effort, and so you know the the topography around Edge right now is super exciting. I know I'm paid by Microsoft to say that, but you know the reason I work at Microsoft is because I was excited about this stuff beforehand, before ever joining. So I'm super excited as a web developer in particular about it, and uh, just as a common user in general, uh, you know because it it finally is a browser that works with the internet as opposed to creating friction, you know, with, with the internet. So it's, it's pretty nice. So are there any plans to come to Mac or iOS? You know, we've actually, a lot of people on our team, they use Mac hardware. Uh, actually, you know, David Story, uh, D Story on Twitter, I believe, sits right behind me. I, I don't think he owns personally a Windows machine. Uh, David is, is one of those brilliant web engineers who's trying to help us make the internet better. And so he brings just a rich amount of history into, uh, you know, edge, 
Uh, he worked for Opera in the past, and has been you know working on browsers and, and web standards. And David is a a you know a Mac user, and so you know David is able to give us his perspective into what it's like being a Mac user, observing Edge from a distance, and also you know closely given his privileged position at Microsoft. And so you know we w- the number one request that we've actually had from people was how do I develop in it? Like how do I actually build websites for Edge from my MacBook Air? Uh, or from MacBook Pro or anything like that. And so what we did is towards the end of last year, I believe, maybe in around the middle of last year, we released something called Remote App. And it streams a browser to any iOS device. So that's my iPhone that I have at my side right here. I can open up a streamed version of the Edge engine on here on my MacBook Air that I used to have. I could stream it to that. And the integration is pretty seamless. It, It looks and feels like it's directly on your machine, but it's just being streamed over your network connection. And so that has been you know, satisfactory for the, the you know, engineers who are working from Apple hardware, uh, from what we've heard. There is the issue of like the network connectivity. You have to be online to use it. And so for the people who aren't online all the time, maybe they're going through the, the, uh, the typical train tunnel ex, you know, uh, uh, ex, you know, experiment where you know, can you use this over your passing underneath the ground or something. We have free virtual machines that other people were able to download. They can actually spin up within a virtual machine on their MacBook Air or their MacBook you know, Pro or something. We actually don't have any plans right now to put it natively on uh, iOS or anything, but those two scenarios have basically covered like 99% of the requests for people, which is I just want to test the web and I want to make sure my stuff is not going to be broken. Yeah, I was I was just curious because I know I've I use you know the Microsoft's apps a lot on iOS and and even on uh, with the latest Office uh, on my Mac as well and and they're pretty solid. So uh, I was I was kind of lo- hoping and looking forward to a, another browser option because um, you know mm. looking you know, I just think Microsoft's doing some good stuff in their in their software lately. So it's, cool stuff. I mean I I almost almost considered a Windows Ten machine for the kids too. So uh, yeah, doing they're doing pretty good stuff out there. It is definitely something that is like always on the discussion table. You know, I, I, like I said, I use an iPhone. You know, David sits behind me, uses a MacBook Air. Nine times out of ten, I see him. He's on that. Um, quite a few people around the office. We are not a single monoculture when it comes to hardware. You know, we are just general geeks when it comes to technology. So people have Android devices, people have Windows machines, people have MacBook, people have you know Linux distros on their desktops. We are all just trying to move the the industry as a whole forward. We happen to be at Microsoft, and we happen to be building. We're trying to build the best browser for Windows right now. And once we kind of establish that, and we have a good foundation, then you know we could probably port that to other operating systems in the future. That's definitely something to consider. You know, we have bitten up a large chunk of work to do. You know, there are other really amazing browsers on the Windows platform. And so we've got some serious competition. Uh, some In some areas, we've got some catching up to do. and uh, But once we've accomplished that, then I think we start to look at where we go from there. If among the people who are using a Mac, do you know what kind of software they're setting up to? Are they using Microsoft, you know, uh, Windows as a virtual machine? Or do they just maintain the code? in apps and, you know, share it among the de- other developers with PCs? Uh, how, how is that working? So we actually, I'll take David as another example. David has actually been contributing quite heavily to uh, a new project, a relatively new project called Visual Studio Code. And this actually is, it's a new product from Microsoft that is cross-platform. Um, it is an IDE or an editor for programmers. It runs on, you know, his Mac, it runs on my uh, Windows, it runs on Linux, I believe. And David has been doing, you know, some uh, contributions to that lately. And he does that just from his, his Mac. He's not running Windows in a VM or anything. The, the software is cross-platform. But when he's doing stuff with Edge, I do believe that he uh, – actually, I don't think he even runs in a VM. I think what mm. he generally does is he will stream it to his desktop um, using a third-party service called Browser Stack, I believe. And what Browser Stack does is Browser Stack – connects your browser instance to a virtual machine in the cloud. So if you want to test on you know, an, an older iPhone, if you want to test on a brand new iPhone that you don't physically own, if you are you know, wanting to test on a Windows phone, you can do that. If you want to test 
from Opera. They have basically every version of every browser for every platform and nearly every device. And they stream it through your browser window. So it's a pretty amazing tool. It's it's not a Microsoft tool or anything. We we love it and we recommend it to people. But you can actually stream Edge through there as well. And so it's it's a nice kind of friction-free way for developers and designers to see how their stuff is going to work cross-platform, cross-device. And I know David takes uh, advantage of that as well. Awesome. Well, I think that's going to wrap it up for this episode. That This flew by. Good topics. Good discussion. Yeah, it's fun talking with you guys. Always. Lots more in the outline we didn't get to discuss. So you never know. We'll have to do a special two-parter or something. Cool. So if you'd like to get to anything Jonathan mentioned, get to those in the show notes. If you want to find us online, we're all available on Twitter. Our guest is at Jonathan Sampson. That's his personal account for his uh, developer side of things. You have another Twitter account. What is that, Jonathan? I do for kind of official Microsoft business. It is at Samson MSFT. So MSFT for Microsoft. My co-host is Joshua Pfeiffer on Twitter. That's P-E-I-F-F-E-R, his last name, Joshua Pfeiffer. I am underscore Joe Darnell on Twitter. And for the show notes with links to everything we discussed, those are available at tectonic.fm slash 46. If you want to catch up with us via email, send those to hello at tectonic.fm. I'm Joe Darnell. Thanks for listening to Tectonic. <laughs> cool. Hey, I was interested in the edge stuff. I know you, you kind of graded out there at the end, Joe. I'm not sure where you were going with the show. No, but. it's okay. Yeah, no, I, I usually update as we go along. Thanks for raising it up again. I didn't know if you wanted to talk about it or not. So yeah, I was, I was, you know, good call. obviously interested in the future, you know, for, for Macs. And then also, uh, I guess we didn't get to the former browser stuff. Now, just remind me, like edge was completely built from the ground up, right? That was kind of the, the whole deal. Well, what we did is in 2014, we took the, uh, you know, f- like just laying the fr- framework for this. Internet Explorer is decades old. Right, right. So there was the NCSE in, you know, University of Champaign-Urbana in Illinois. They were building this, uh, you know, small little browser components, which became Mosaic. They then, you know, basically licensed out Mosaic to a company called Spyglass in the early 90s. And then Spyglass added some components on top of that, and then they licensed out their code, which was basically like this, you know, uh, uh, inception type of thing. They had license code instead of license code, and <laughs> Microsoft licensed Spyglass's code with, I believe, the agreement that you know any of the profits we make, they would get a portion or something like that. I, don't, I can't recall correctly. Um, and so all of this code is decades old. And so we're talking like millions and millions of lines of code. And so whenever we had this idea of, okay, we actually want to build a new browser, you know, should we use WebKit? Should we take the engine, you know, the open source Chromium uh, browser and build something from that? And, you know, there was so much technical debt. There's so much technical cost that they just decided, well, that's actually not going to be practical. You know, there's a lot of, um, basically, there's a massive delta between what we would need from the browser and and what Chromium can offer right now. Not to mention, we have a whole lot of enterprise customers who have basically been using IE since IE3, and we can't really make the next version, you know, day and night different from the previous ones. And so if we had moved to WebKit, that would have been pretty catastrophic for, for many Microsoft clients and stuff. And so what they said is, okay, we're going to take the Trident engine, which is what powered Internet Explorer, and we're going to freeze it, like just completely, you know, put this thing in suspension. And we're never going to touch it again. And that will be for IE11 perpetually going forward, basically. We're going to take a copy of that, and we're going to strip out every line of proprietary code. So anything that is not a standard, anything that Microsoft put in here, you know, experimenting with the web in the past, we're going to rip it all out. And so we ripped out literally millions of uh, lines of code, if I'm not mistaken. And we ripped out thousands of APIs and just radically reduced the size of the rendering engine. 
And as a result, it kind of merited a new name. And so we gave it the name Trident, I'm sorry, uh, Edge HTML, which is not as cool sounding as Trident, but Edge HTML is the new engine. And uh, then we started saying, okay, you know, we, we looked at basically how well does the IE11 engine work on the web? And it had something like a 90% pass rate. So if you went to, you know, 90% of the code that's on the web would work fine inside IE11. And that was because the code was checking to see which browser the user was using, and it would kind of mutate itself to work for that browser. And so we put our new engine online, the one that is basically IE11 sans all the proprietary stuff, and we said, how well does this work? And it had like a 20% pass rate. It was it was like terrifying how bad it was. And that was because we didn't have any of that IE11 code in there. And the new engine was being identified by websites as Google Chrome. So they thought that, okay, well, this is Chrome. I'm going to send down all of this code that is Chrome specific, that is, you know, WebKit specific. But we didn't have any compatibility with any of that. And so we had like just horribly low pass rates. And so we started basically writing, you know, many thousands of lines of code, millions of lines of code again, had, you know, hundreds of engineers working on this uh, to implement that delta between what the web expects and what our engine, our newly trimmed engine is capable of delivering. And so now today, fast forward, you know, we we have surpassed the IE11 benchmark. Uh, Trident, you know, now performs worse on the web than H- Edge HTML does. So Edge HTML is actually blown right past that. Um, in certain uh, specific areas, like in JavaScript support, which is the main scripting language of the web, we've actually blown past Chrome and Firefox too, which is really exciting because those are two really like amazing browsers. And so we've found that you know now that we have separated ourselves from IE, we now have this liberty to move at breakneck rates. You know things that we've never been able to do in the past, we can now do. And now we actually have a a browser that can compete, um, you know, in parallel with Firefox and Chrome and, you know, many of the other amazing browsers. Safari is pretty decent as well. And uh, it's kind of nice to see that Edge is basically like voting for Pedro, you know, and all of our wildest dreams are coming true. (laughs) And so, you know, this is, it it is definitely night and day. And, you know, one thing I I really appreciate you guys let me come on and talk on the, the podcast. But I, I really hate that I feel like I'm doing a commercial for Edge. And so, <laughs> like, I'm trying to do less and less of that for all of our people and their specialities. Okay, good, I want to get good. more and more to just the the interests in technology in general. Yeah, that's what I'm. You know, is trying to keep it around that too. Like, you know, if I'm talking about mentoring, I don't want to talk about that within a, a context of Edge. And you know, I I really, you know, Edge is what I do, but even from Microsoft's perspective, that is not what we are all about. And uh, I definitely, you know, would not be heartbroken if you're like, hey, let's just not talk about Edge on an episode. Uh, let's talk about just technology in general. That would be no problem whatsoever. Because I, I definitely, Absolutely. I don't want yeah. you guys to look like you're, you're paid shields for Microsoft or something. That would be horrible. So. Oh, no. Everybody okay. listening to the show at this point realizes we've talked to all different sorts of developers and professionals and people just interested in technology. So we've had designers, uh, you know, who just are totally cross-platform. We've had, I-, I think, a few people that were on the fringe of being like 50% iOS developers, 50% Android developers. Oh, wow. And then um, we've had lawyers, you just name it, you know, like people who write books. Yeah, so... It's not all been, you know, specific to, hey, what does so-and-so do with his career and pitch a product? You know, cool. uh, I don't think that that's the feel we have developed here. Okay, that, that's good. But we do like the, we do appreciate, we consider it very special to have a story from people over at Microsoft. So we do like to get it from somebody who knows what's going on. Yeah, as long as you guys are okay with it, man. And again, you know, we have to kind of look at what we're exposed to. You know, we're... I work in the uh, web platform ecosystem, you know, at Microsoft. So I'm I'm only talking to engineers. I'm talking to developers and stuff, and you know, they are all very content with you know their you know Chrome on their device or, uh, the, you know, the guy that sits behind me, David. He uses Safari, which I personally I don't I don't I don't like Safari. I don't get it. 
but you know, I see the appeal in Chrome and Firefox and stuff, but uh, yeah, I don't know. Safari just seems odd to me. I, I like it about 50% of the time. And I'm the other time I'm in Chrome. Usually I scratch my head for half a second and I'm like, oh, I'll just go to Chrome. <laughs> you know, I, I, I think what bothers me is, uh, Whenever I'm inside Safari, I struggle to figure out how to open up the developer tools. And that's usually what bothers me. It's like I, in the past, I don't think they had right-click inspect element in there. Right, yeah. Yeah, and so it was always more difficult. I was like, I just don't get it. You know, Command-Shift-C or, you know, there's some obscure keystroke, you know, that I need to do. Chrome and Firefox and Edge and stuff, I just right-click and inspect element. I'm done. I suspect it's, judging from what you just said, it's maybe it's that way today with Safari. It is better now. I don't know if a developer would be happy with it because I I don't know the specifics and I don't know how to think like y'all think when looking at the code. Mm-hmm. I do know though, whenever I want to gather something that's for CSS, I usually look at it in Chrome. I just, man, it's been maybe a year since I've tried it in Safari just because I found it to be really a comfortable place to browse the internet, mm-hmm. but not so hot when... I want the plugins or I want to get a bit more granular and look at the developer kit because it just, it, yeah, it's more elegant to inspect in Chrome. It just, it's, I like the way it's formatted. You know, we, we, we've had many people tell us that, like they would tell us, you know, we, we just like using the Chrome developer tools. And so I, you know, we didn't mention it during the podcast or anything today, but um, one thing we did was we actually built a bridge between the Chrome developer tools and Microsoft edge so that if you want to debug your website in Edge, but you don't like the Edge developer tools, you can actually integrate Chrome's developer tools into Edge so you can continue to work within a familiar environment. Hmm. And yes. uh, you know that, that kind of stuff blows my mind because it is not at all what Microsoft is known for doing. Microsoft has that you know famously historical mantra of oh, was the embrace extend extinguish or something <laughs> you know where they would get into an industry they would play fair you know advance the ind- the industry and then they would just consume it and destroy the competition or something and you know today it's like there's there's no secret shadowy meetings everyone is like hey how do we just build like a really freaking awesome internet and you know, it, it blew my mind when they're like, hey, well, what if we just write a bunch of like uh, special code to make, I mean, we'll, we'll support proprietary features inside Chrome. You know, in the past, if Microsoft had proprietary features in IE, the web de- development community would just lament it and, and be just outraged that Microsoft would write proprietary code. But because of like the original or the unique history of iOS and the iPhone in particular, there's a bunch of proprietary WebKit code on the web, and we're like, hey, well, maybe we should just like support this proprietary code. And I felt really odd about that originally, but it makes sense, you know, looking at it after the fact. And we just, you know, with the developer tools too, like, hey, if people like to be in Chrome's developer tools, maybe we should build a little utility that connects those to Edge so they can still debug their browser and Edge using familiar dev tools and it's like what in the world man who is this what is this company like this is this is nothing like it was in the 90s no so any chance we recorded that i'll stick that in i'll put that in the show (laughs) uh i i have everything still recorded on my end i'm still recording yeah awesome all right guys so there's um, a bonus material sure Now, if my computer will just wake up, wake up so I can turn it off, that'd be great. Mm, nice. not, my display you're, you're went not, to sleep. Uh, I'm not selling me on this MacBook One. It seems, <laughs> it seems a little bit. No, I'm not selling anyone on this MacBook. It's mine. I, I actually think it's going to work out. I just need to upgrade my my display, and everything will be fine again. Have you guys seen the uh, Windows Continuum? Any of the, no. the concept videos? So, one of the, the Microsoft is like really pulling out all the stops to try to figure out how to make the Windows phone attractive. And uh, one of the things that I got to see early last year, um, actually late last year, uh, was this thing called Continuum, where your phone is your PC. And so (laughs) your phone wirelessly connects to a keyboard, mouse, and monitor. And it is a full working desktop PC that like you, you like you don't plug it in or anything it's just wirelessly connected like over bluetooth and and stuff like the, the idea that i can put my phone like my phone is my computer 
And the phones are, they have enough memory, they have enough power today to do a lot of the menial tasks we do on the computer. And I can just put it in my pocket, take it to work, and it's it's the same computer. Like there's no syncing between cloud services and data storage and stuff like that. It's mm. You just sit it down on your tabletop next to your air display monitor and you click connect and your phone is now broadcasting its screen to your monitor and you have a full desktop experience. You get desktop apps, you know, you get actual... Uh, you know, taskbar at the bottom of the screen that, you know, you, Windows users are, are used to using. And I, I can only imagine that Apple is going to be doing something like that too in the future where it's like, you know, the, the desktop thing is going to become, for many users, it will probably become less and less necessary. I mean, we spend all of our time on our phones anyway. So between that and the HoloLens, which I've gotten to play with a couple of times, the idea that I'll be able to have a fully virtualized, a virtualized, you know, an edgeless desktop experience. I'm fully immersed into my desktop, and there is no edge to it, and there is no PC tower, you know, tower humming at my feet. You know, the idea that I could do all this stuff, actually have my phone in my pocket, and that is my PC, and have it, you know, air display over to my surf, uh, to my Hololens, and it's like, oh my goodness, the future is going to be so freaking awesome, you know. <laughs> It's gonna. I'm actually gonna have like space in my office for more books or something. 